Greetings, brethren, and it certainly is a privilege to be able to speak to you on this first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, over the years, it has been customary that we ask the question and also review the question of why are we here? And I think this year, because we have many new people at the feast and also many visitors at the feast, it would be appropriate for just a few moments to consider this question, why are we here? In terms of what the Bible has to say about the subject, the Bible indicates that we are to keep the Feast of Tabernacles along with the other holy days that God outlines in the scriptures. We find that in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. But we're to keep the feast and to keep these high Sabbath days or holy days to rejoice before God, to fellowship with one another, and also to worship God as we gather together on these Sabbaths and high holy days. We're also to focus on the meaning of the feast, just what this Feast of Tabernacles means in the overall plan of God. God does have a great, mighty plan, a plan of salvation that's designed to encompass all the peoples of the world. You know, in recent years, some people have said there is no plan, that Jesus is the plan. And yet the Bible says something very different. If we go to Isaiah, the 46th chapter, Isaiah 46 and verses 8 through 10, We find God telling Isaiah that he has a great plan that he's working out on this earth. This is actually a challenge to the critics. God told Isaiah in verse 8 of Isaiah 56, he says, Remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, get the facts, get real. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none like me. I am God, and there is none like me, and there is no other. Declaring the end or the outcome from the very beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Now that Hebrew word for counsel is plan or purpose. What God is telling people through the pen of Isaiah He says that I am God, I declare the future from the very beginning, and my counsel, my plan, my purpose will stand. It shall be accomplished. God is working out a plan and a purpose on this earth. And as we will see, it is pictured in the holy days, the seven annual festivals of God. You can turn on your own later to the first chapter of Ephesians, where Paul is talking there that God has a plan, he has a purpose that he's working out on this earth that is going to bring, that he is going to bring to pass. If you'll turn to Leviticus 23 very quickly and just notice the listing of the holy days that we find there. God was giving these holy days to the Israelites to set them apart from the world, to keep them mindful of his plan and of his purpose. These are commanded assemblies. They're commanded assemblies. We're commanded to be here. In Leviticus 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. It doesn't say these are the feasts of Moses. It does not say these are the feasts of the Jews. Moses was to speak to all the children of Israel, all the descendants of the tribes that we read about in the Bible, the 12 sons of Jacob and their descendants. He was not just talking to the Jews. He was talking to all of Israel. And he says, these are the feasts of the Lord. They are to be proclaimed as holy convocations. The word convocation means a commanded assembly. When I went to college years ago, we had a convocation every Wednesday morning in a college chapel. And it was a commanded assembly. They took the attendance. And if we were not there, we were marked absent. 
And we were allowed, I think, uh, three chapel cuts a semester. And after that, they began to lower our grade by a letter in our classes. In other words, we needed to be there. We were commanded to be there. And the reason that God commands us to be here at these festivals is so that we can rehearse the meaning. We can be reminded annually of the meaning of these holy days. Very briefly, these holy days picture this great plan of salvation that God is working out on this earth that's really designed to impact all human beings, those that are called now and those that will be called later. The Passover is what we first observe early in the year. Jesus Christ is called our Passover. And that Passover lamb that was sacrificed on the Passover was symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make for all mankind. The days of unleavened bread that follow. Talk about putting sin out of our lives, getting rid of leaven. And we do that symbolically. We put out leaven physically of our homes, but symbolically it pictures that we've got to put sin out of our lives if we're going to grow and overcome and become like Jesus Christ. Later, the Feast of Pentecost pictures the beginning of the New Testament church. And it also pictures the pouring out of God's Spirit, that we need God's Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to help us understand the Scriptures, and help us to develop the mind of God. If we're going to grow to become like Jesus Christ, to develop His mind, we've got to have God's Spirit, and we've got to be led by God's Spirit. And by keeping the Feast of Pentecost every year, it reminds us of this important step in the plan of God. Then in the fall, we observe four holy days in the space of less than a month. The Feast of Trumpets pictures the return of Jesus Christ, who the Bible says will return to this earth at the last trump. The Day of Atonement pictures the binding of Satan. Satan is the one who has caused all of the suffering throughout history. Satan is going to be put out of commission. And this holy day, the Day of Atonement, pictures the time in the future when he's going to be bound and he will not be able to influence people at that time. Then comes the Feast of Tabernacles that pictures the coming kingdom of God, as we will see, a time when Jesus Christ sets up the government of God on this earth and the saints reign with him. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. It's a time for rejoicing. It's a time for fellowship. It's a time for focusing on the meaning of this important stage in the plan of God. And then at the end of the feast, the last great day, pictures the coming white throne judgment period, a time after the feast when everyone who's ever lived will be raised and given a chance to understand the truth of God. So this is what these holy days mean. This is what they picture. And God wants us to rehearse these meanings as we go through the holy day sequence every year so that we don't forget these things, so we don't forget the plan of God. And yet what has happened over history, and this began in the early first century, in fact, even under ancient Israel, who were given these holy days, they drifted off into idolatry. They forgot the plan of God. Today, as people keep Christmas, as they keep Easter, uh, these are pleasant family times. But these holy days or holidays that were borrowed from paganism and given a Christian name, totally exclude or eclipse, uh, cause us to forget the plan of God. And as a result, many people are very sincere today. They keep Christmas thinking that they're celebrating the Lord's birth. They keep Easter thinking that they're celebrating the resurrection of God, of uh, Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible tells us we're to remember Christ's death. It doesn't tell us when Christ was born. The resurrection that we look forward to is coming in the future. But the world has been deceived because they have forgotten and they've been told to discard and reject the holy days which picture the plan of God. In the sermon today, on this first day of the feast, I want to review how the Feast of Tabernacles uh, looks forward to and pictures this coming kingdom of God. I want to make that connection very clear, that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God. 
And I want to focus in the second part of the sermon, the latter part of the sermon, on a very specific aspect of this coming kingdom of God, which is the government of God that's going to be established on this earth. And then I also want to discuss how does all this relate to us once you know that the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God. And once you know that it's also going to picture the uh, coming government of God, how does this relate to you? How does this relate to me? Uh, how could we prepare to be part of what is coming in the future? So if we ask the first question, how does the Feast of Tabernacles relate to the kingdom of God? I want to go through several scriptures. Some of these will go through rather quickly. In the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 of the book of Mark, one of the Gospels, probably one of the earliest Gospels written, it mentions that Jesus Christ, when he began his ministry, came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That was his message. He was talking about a coming kingdom of God. And it excited people. It excited the people that he was listening to. They were aware of the prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah and about a coming kingdom, as we will see. And they were hoping at that time, the time of Jesus Christ, the time that he walked on this earth, they were hoping that Jesus Christ would set up a kingdom then because the Romans uh, were in charge, had conquered and basically controlled the Holy Land, the land of Palestine. Uh, and the Jews were hoping that Jesus Christ would set up a kingdom then and uh, basically throw off the Roman yoke and get rid of these conquerors that were controlling their country. But Jesus Christ did not come to set up a kingdom physically on this earth at that time. But that is coming in the future. But Jesus' message, as we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Mark 6, 33, Jesus told his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, make this the priority in your life. And that applies to us today, that in setting priorities in your life, we need to be seeking first, focusing on, hoping to be in and preparing to be in the coming kingdom of God. You know, as we talk about various things at the feast this year, the various aspects of the kingdom of God, you know, if you're a younger person or an older person, you begin to focus and ask yourself the question, what would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? What would you like to change about this world? How can you prepare to be part of the, the government that Jesus Christ is going to set up on this earth? What would you like to change? What would you like to restore? And you can prepare for that. But think big. Think off into the future. Prepare for what is coming. So Jesus' advice to his own disciples was seek first. Set your heart on. Focus your mind on the coming kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, it talks about the uh, disciples that Jesus Christ called and trained, the 12. And he commissioned them to go forth to uh, <clears throat> the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but to preach about the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, it was called in Matthew, because Matthew's writing primarily to Jews, and they didn't want to uh, be offended by using the word God. So he talked about the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. But he told his disciples, you go and preach about this coming kingdom of God. It's interesting, in Matthew 13, Jesus used a series of parables, a series of parables, and they were all about the coming kingdom of God. He said, seek the kingdom of God like you would hidden treasure. You know, go after it. <clears throat> he talked about uh, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small and then it's going to grow and eventually envelop the entire world. So he used a series of parables illustrating aspects about the kingdom of God, trying to make it real to his audience at that time. In Matthew 19, verses 25 through 28, 
Jesus told his own disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He was telling them, this is your future. This is what you have to look forward to in the coming kingdom of God. Each of you, as my 12 disciples, will sit on 12 thrones as symbolic of a governmental position as a civic leader and a religious ruler in the coming kingdom of God. So it's no wonder they were kind of jockeying among themselves. You read about uh, a chapter later in the book of Matthew, how they were kind of uh, discussing among themselves who's going to have the greatest position, the top position uh, in the kingdom of God. They knew what was coming. Even one of the disciples' mothers came and talked with Jesus and said, I've got these two fine boys. You know, and could they just have the uh, position on your right hand and your left hand? Can they have these two top positions? Uh, You know, you can see mothers doing that who love their children. But Jesus said, look, that's not mine to give. And then he talked about we've got to become servant leaders. We've got to focus on serving, not on this great high position. But Jesus did promise them that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Those thrones, as we will see, are going to be on this earth, not up in heaven. They're not going to sit on a cloud and play a harp forever and ever and ever. The kingdom of God is about a very real government, as we will see, that Jesus Christ is going to set up on this earth. In John chapter 7, let's turn there for just a moment. Because Jesus makes the statement in the book of Matthew to follow him. Paul makes the statement in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. If we actually look at what Jesus Christ did, what he said and what he taught, and then we determine to follow in his footsteps, we will be keeping the holy days, which picture the plan of God, which only makes sense. In John chapter 7, in verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now the Jews were the only ones that were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles at that time. Uh, The ten tribes of Israel had gone off into captivity and then wandered off into northwest Europe, picked up pagan ways, lost their identity, so they were no longer keeping the holy days. But the Jews were, and Jesus was in Palestine. So John uses this phraseology, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And it says his brothers, that is Jesus' brothers, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea because people are persecuting you. But notice what Jesus said in the context of the feast coming. He said to his brothers and those that were around him, he said, You go up to this feast. I'm not going up uh, to this feast yet. For my time has not fully come. But he told his brothers, you go up and keep the feast. Verse 10, it says, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, uh, but as it were in secret. So Jesus went to the feast also. Then verse 14, it says, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. So Jesus was keeping the feast. He taught at the feast. In verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So he was preaching at the feast. So Jesus Christ kept the feast himself. Some people say, well, he was a Jew. That's why he kept the feast. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Follow me as I follow Christ. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you find Paul telling the church at Corinth. This was primarily a Gentile church. Corinth was a big, uh, bustling city. It was on a major trade route uh, between the east and Rome. So a lot of ideas came through there. Uh, The people in Corinth were sophisticated people. They were wealthy people, by and large. They were business people. They were intelligent people. But Paul is telling the church at Corinth, and he's writing here really in the context of the spring holy days. He says, uh, verse 8, he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. Now, he's talking about the spring holy days, the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. But he says, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The point I want to make here is that Paul was telling the early church. And Paul is writing around 50, 55 A.D. 
about 25 or 30 years after Christ's crucifixion, after Christ had ascended into heaven, Paul was still telling a Gentile church and urging them to keep the feast, to keep the feast, because Paul was walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He was following Christ's example. And if you study the history of the early church, the early church kept the holy days, kept the feasts, up until probably around 350 A.D., whenever the church that eventually became the Catholic Church began adopting pagan holidays and giving those holidays a Christian name so that they could supposedly facilitate the conversion of the pagans. See, they could keep what they were used to keeping, these pagan holidays, but by giving it a new name, hopefully they would become converted and become Christians. But, you know, you can't do that. You can't take pagan holidays and make something Christian out of them and then reject the holy days that picture the plan of God. Also in around the 350s, 400s, the Roman Empire threw its weight behind this uh, developing pagan church that was now calling itself by a Christian name and basically persecuted people that continued to what they called Judaize, continued to keep the seventh-day Sabbath and continued to keep the biblical holy days. So this is why the holy days were lost. They were rejected. People were persecuted for keeping them. And that's why the modern Catholic Church and the Protestant churches that came out of the Catholic Church no longer keep these days and think that they're Jewish. Many people today don't understand what happened in the early centuries of the church, how the truth was thrown out, obliterated, obscured, and how pagan holidays were drawn in and how that early church became corrupted. But Paul was telling the early church to keep the holy days, to keep these high Sabbaths, including the Feast of Tabernacles. If you go to Acts chapter 8, just noticing what the apostles taught as they went out preaching and spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 8, Philip goes down to Samaria. But notice what he was preaching about. He was following the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 8 is, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the coming government of God, that is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, and the name of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he suffered, and he died for the sins of mankind. He became our Passover, covering our sins. So the apostles were preaching about the coming kingdom of God as well as the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you go to Acts chapter 20, where Paul was on his way to Rome, he stopped by Ephesus, spoke with the leaders and the uh, elders of the church there in Ephesus, knowing that he would probably never see them again. Uh, Notice in verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me. Paul knew he was probably heading to his death in Rome. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and a ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul was preaching a gospel of grace that we don't deserve to be called, but God in his mercy is calling some today and opening their minds to understand the truth of God. But notice in verse 25, Indeed, now I know that among that you all among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, may see my face no more. So Paul was preaching a gospel of grace, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but he was also preaching about the kingdom of God, which was the very thing that Jesus Christ was preaching about that we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, if we go to Acts chapter 28, at the end of Paul's ministry, notice what he was still preaching about. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 28, So when they had appointed him a day, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. 
Paul was preaching about this coming kingdom, as we will see, includes a gospel about a coming government of God and what that government is going to do and going to accomplish on this earth. To whom he testified and explained and solemnly testified that they, about the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So Paul was using the Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah who would give his life for the sins of mankind and also that he would set up a government that would reign on this earth. Verse 30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no one forbidding him. So this was what Paul was preaching about, the coming kingdom of God that is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, as we will see. But now let's jump to Revelation, what John was writing about. Towards the end of the New Testament period, John lived and actually was preaching and writing this book uh, probably in the 90s A.D., the last of the apostles to, to be alive on this earth. But notice what he was preaching. He was preaching about this coming kingdom of God and what the saints would be doing. Remember, we read in Matthew 19 that Jesus told his disciples that you will sit on 12 thrones a ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now notice what Paul, or excuse me, what John is talking about here in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you notice the title of the book of Revelation, it's not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which Jesus Christ gave to John. So John talks about, beginning in verse 4, the seven churches that he's writing to, these churches were in Asia Minor on a mail route, and the mail went sequentially from one to another. And Paul and John uses then these seven churches to convey a message to the church really at large and the church in the future. John to the seven churches, verse 4, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, focusing on the future, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, indicating there are going to be more people reborn from the dead in a resurrection. <clears throat> and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That is what Jesus Christ qualified to do. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, talking about the role of Jesus Christ in the plan of God, pictured by the Passover. And he made us, Paul talking about the members of the church, he made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. So what John is saying is our role is to become kings and priests in this coming kingdom of God, as we will see. And this was a very powerful message. In John chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> Uh, John is also talking about here <clears throat> the future. And he sees in vision uh, God's throne, and he sees the, uh, the uh, living creatures around that throne singing. Uh, <clears throat> and it says here in verse 8, <clears throat> Now when he had taken the scroll, that is Jesus Christ, and the four living uh, creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense. And then John draws this analogy here that the incense coming from these bowls is like the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll that is talking to Jesus Christ and open up its seals. You were slain and have redeemed us. And it's not the creatures around the throne that were redeemed. It was the saints that have been redeemed those people that are part of God's church. And you re redeemed us, or I think in some translations it says them, talking about the saints, to God by your blood, out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and have made us, or these saints, kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. You know, that's exactly what Jesus Christ was preaching. That was what he was telling his own disciples. He said, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What we're told here is the saints are going to become kings and priests 
to our God, and we shall reign on this earth, not up in heaven, but the reign is going to be on this earth. We go then to um, Revelation chapter 11. He's picking up the story flow. It talks about Jesus Christ coming back to this earth. He comes at the last trump. In verse 15 of Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Christ is going to come back to this earth and take over and set up a government that's going to reign over the entire earth. And the saints are going to reign with him, with him as we just mentioned. <clears throat> and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their throne, thrones fell on their faces saying, We give thanks to you. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, takes the reins of government, and begins to straighten out all the problems on this earth. This was the gospel, a major aspect of the gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching. That's what excited people. Edward Gibbon mentions in chapter 15 of his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, that this was the gospel. This was what was preached in the early church for the first three centuries. Is This was the driving force. People looking forward to this coming kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ would return and the saints would reign with him on this earth. And straighten out the problems of the world. And that excited people. But as Gibbon points out, this was later towards the uh, second and third centuries, viewed merely as an allegory. Well, it's not really real. It's really not going to happen. It's just kind of a story. And then how it was later then, uh, within 50 to 100 years, rejected as heresy, essentially by those that became the leaders of the Catholic Church, this great universal church. But they labeled the true gospel, the coming kingdom of God, as heresy. And then through the Middle Ages began referring to the Catholic Church as the kingdom of God. You can't read the history of the Catholic Church and conclude that they are the examples of God's government on this earth. It's a horrible story. That was not the kingdom of God. They substituted a different gospel a different message. They lost track of the holy days and people lost track of the plan of God and they misunderstood totally what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is about a coming government of God when Christ is going to reign on this earth with the saints. Notice what things are going to be like when Christ returns. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. Wrath because people have distorted the gospel, perverted the gospel, led people off in the wrong direction, and people have suffered because they've not understood the truth. The nations were angry. They're not going to be happy that Christ is returning to put an end to human governments. Your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, and they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints. So there's a reward coming. And that reward is going to involve government reigning with Jesus Christ on this earth. And those who fear your name, small and great, those are the ones that are going to be rewarded, and those that uh, destroy the earth are going to be destroyed. Now let's jump to Revelation chapter 20, finally. <clears throat> John is here describing what is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns, the early Verses here, verses 1 through 3, talk about Satan is going to be bound. This is what is pictured by the Day of Atonement. And then looking forward to this period of time, this thousand-year period pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> John says here in verse 4, And I saw thrones. See, Jesus told his disciples they're going to sit on thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. This is talking about the saints. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they, talking about the saints, lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
when Jesus returns. The saints are going to be resurrected. Those who have been called and converted and grown in the character of God down through the ages up until Christ's return will be resurrected at that time. And they will reign with Christ for a thousand years on this earth. Then kind of a parenthetical expression in verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's going to be a second resurrection. What Paul was, what John was talking about here in verse four and five was called, is called the first resurrection. Verse six, it said, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Uh, Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of his Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's talking about the coming kingdom of God, and that is what is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is all New Testament teaching, but these New Testament teachings were based on Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament teachings that the Jews in Paul's day, in John's day and Paul's day understood, and they were looking forward to the fulfillment of those prophecies. You notice in Daniel chapter 2, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, here we have some of these prophecies about a coming kingdom of God in which Jesus Christ and the saints are going to rule. Daniel understood these things. He may not have understood all the details, but he was given this information. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision of a big image, had various parts to it, and then Daniel interprets the meaning of that vision. And he mentions that the talking about the feet of clay has um, toes, and those uh, ten toes picture ten kings that will be uh, reigning in the last days. And then in verse 43, it says, In the days of these kings, these ten pictured by these ten toes at the very end of the age, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. See, this is the coming kingdom of God, that God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Jesus Christ and the saints are going to reign forever. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Um, It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. In other words, the kingdom of God is going to take over from all the kingdoms on this earth. Insomuch as you saw that the stone, this big stone comes down and hits the base of this image, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, talks about uh, the Messiah being the rock, the rock, the stone. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul makes the statement that Jesus Christ was the rock that was with Israel in the wilderness. So here's a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ depicted as a stone or a rock that smashes this idol picturing human governments on its feet and that whole thing crumbles. And then uh, it broke in pieces, the iron and bronze, silver and clay and so on. The great God has made known to the king, that is to Nebuchadnezzar, what will come to pass after this. In other words, this is the future. Remember we read in Isaiah 46 that God says, I predict the future from the very past and I will bring about my plan and purpose. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to bring it to pass. Nebuchadnezzar was told this dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Let's notice one other scripture about what is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. These are Old Testament prophecies, but predicting uh, what is going to happen at the end of the age when this kingdom of God comes to this earth. And these were prophecies that the Jews understood uh, were going to be fulfilled at some time, but they didn't know exactly when and how. In Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It says, For unto us a child is born... And unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Remember Revelation chapter 11 said that Christ is going to come back and reign, take up the reins of government. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, uh, to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So what we're reading here is that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and set up a government that's going to reign over the entire earth and that the saints are going to reign with Jesus Christ in that coming kingdom. Now, for the remainder of the sermon, I'd like to talk about what that government is going to look like, what the government of God is going to look like on this earth. What is it going to do, and how can we prepare to be part of that? And this is an exciting aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's exactly what we're supposed to be talking about during the feast. If the feast is family time, the feast is a time to enjoy fellowship together, It's a time to worship God, but we are here to focus on the meaning of the feast and how this relates to the coming government of God and the gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching on this earth. What is this government of God going to look like? What does the Bible tell us about the government of God? Is it going to be a communistic government? Is it going to be a democracy? Is it going to be a republic? What's it going to look like? Is everybody going to be equal? Will there be roles and uh, responsibilities in that government? Turn back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 18. And we need to put this in context. God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt where they were under a pharaoh. He wanted the nation of ancient Israel to be a light and an example to the world, just like Jesus Christ told his disciples, to be a light to the world. God gave the Israelites his laws. Read that in Exodus chapter 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He gave them his laws to set them apart from the other nations of the world so that they would be different, so they could be a specific kind of light and an example. But Moses was told to set up a certain type of government, not a pharaoh, not a democracy, but notice it was to have a structure. In verse 21, it says, Moreover, talking, this is advice that Moses' father-in-law gave him, but God inspired it. And we see this pattern repeating in other places in Scripture. You shall select from all the people able men, people with ability, not the dregs of society, not the most popular people, but people with ability, competent people who fear God, who tremble at his word, that don't want to do their own thing. They want to do things God's way. They understand the importance of values. They understand there are such things as right and wrong. They don't compromise. Men of truth, not liars, not people that manipulate the truth or color the truth, but men of truth, character, who hate covetousness. They don't try and get all kinds of things for themselves. I was reading where recently where a number of community leaders in a city out in California uh, resigned because the newspapers began publishing their salaries. It was a small town, and they were making more money as the mayor and the police chief Uh, two or three times more than what the uh, mayor of Los Angeles, a much bigger city, were making. And when the people saw where their tax money was going, uh, they were very upset, so these people resigned. But in the government of God, individuals are going to have to have the character not to gather all kinds of things to themselves, building big houses and driving big cars. And yet as you look at the leaders of this world, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what has happened on this earth. People that fear God hate covetousness and place these people to be rulers over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. 
Now, some people at the top of this pyramid will be over thousands of people. People towards the bottom will have smaller groups that they're over. I mean, diagram it out. It's a pyramid. It's a hierarchical structure, levels of responsibility. But God inspired this type of government. God inspired this type of government. And this is referred to several other places in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 9. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. But this is the type of government that God set up. <clears throat> with a leader at the top that he chose and having those leaders choose other leaders, not elect other leaders, but to choose them. <clears throat> to be rulers over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. And they were to judge the people. <clears throat> Verse 25, And Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. And it was basically built on <clears throat> the local leaders would try and handle the problems they could handle. If they couldn't handle it, they bumped it up the line to somebody over them. There were levels of responsibilities. It's a hierarchical form of government. And you can't flatten what God has designed to function in a different way. You can't do that. So this is the type of government that we find in the scriptures. And you don't elect popular people, the most popular people or the most, you know, the person that's going to pay under the table and get themselves elected. People are chosen on the basis of competence and character. Competence and character. Now, these are things that we can develop now as individuals. Learning to be honest, learning to fear God, not compromising the truth of God. <clears throat> learning how to explain and to apply the laws of God. These are the type of individuals that Jesus Christ is going to need in the coming kingdom of God to reign over this earth. <clears throat> so these are the examples of government that we find in the Bible. <clears throat> Let's notice something else if we go to uh, Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Now, the Israelites really didn't want to follow Moses' lead. They griped and they complained. <clears throat> they didn't see the big picture. They looked around and saw how their neighboring kingdoms under kings functioned. Uh, <clears throat> they were willing to listen to the ideas of others. In, Reve in Numbers chapter 14... <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> Moses brought them out into the wilderness. Uh, they were running short on water and food. And notice in verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, If we only had died in Egypt, you know, he should have left us alone. We're out here in the desert. We don't have water. We don't have food. Uh, at least back in Egypt, we had something to eat. Why has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Now, notice what they're suggesting here. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. See, God had chosen Moses to lead them. They didn't like that choice. They said, look, let, let, let us select a leader. We can take over. This is democracy in action. This is democracy in action. We will select a leader, and we will do something. We don't want to be under one person. We don't want to be under Moses, the leader that God had selected. We will select a leader and let us go back to Moses. <clears throat> Moses then told these people in verse 9, Do not rebel against the Lord. Actually, this is Joshua and Caleb speaking here. That Look, the future's ahead of us. It's a good land. God has brought us out of slavery. If the Lord delights, he'll bring us into this land. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Don't select your own leader. Don't go backwards, nor fear the people of the land. You know, Trust God. Don't fear these people, but don't select your own leader. And yet we live in a period of time when democracy is is widespread around the world or has been. 
It's interesting that many people that uh, outside the United States that have been encouraged to try democracy have found it doesn't work that well for them, and they're going back to dictatorships. Uh, strong men take over. In the case of ancient Israel, they got in trouble for selecting their own leader. They rebelled against God. Your churches even do that today. Some have selected their own leaders. In some cases, uh, people have said, we don't even have a minister. We just have a leader. We don't have a minister. We don't need a leader. You know, we're all ministers. We, you know, God can work through all of us. But that's not what we find in the scriptures. <clears throat> it's interesting that Jesus Christ is referred to as the king of kings. He's going to come back to this, this earth, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Christ. So Christ is referred to as the king of kings. In Hosea 3 and verse 5, David is predicted to become the king over all Israel. God uses this form of leadership, kingship, where you have a leader, and then he appoints other leaders. <clears throat> uh, we don't find in the Bible where people were elected. You know, we might read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, that Paul appointed elders in various cities. They weren't elected. In the case of uh, the deacons in Acts chapter 6, it appears that the people recommended individuals on the basis of their character to the apostles, and then the apostles made the final decision, appointing to them to their office. So they weren't elected. Uh, they were recommended and then appointed. This is how God works. And it's based on their character, their track record. Yes, sometimes mistakes are made. But again, God has ways of bringing these things out. But it's a different method than the democratic method that is used today. <clears throat> so when somebody says they're going to flatten the pyramid that God has designed, you need to be careful. When somebody says, well, we're going to elect our own leaders, you need to be careful because that's not what the form of government that we find in the Bible, and that's not going to be the kind of government we find in the coming kingdom of God. Jesus Christ chose his 12 disciples. He trained them. He worked with them for decades, and he told them, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So those positions are already filled. They're already taken care of. Moses is going to have a high position. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will have high positions in the coming kingdom of God. They're not going to be elected. They've already been appointed. And Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and make appointments now, you and I are being called and trained now, being prepared for this coming kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not going to come back and say, well, I was so busy with all these prophecies and bringing the world to an end that now we've got to take uh, you know, a couple of decades, maybe a couple hundred years to figure out who's going to fit into these positions. No, it appears that God has been doing this down through history. You know, God worked with Abraham for a hundred years. You may have been in the church 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. But God worked with Abraham and with Sarah and with Isaac and Jacob and their wives for decades. In the case of Abraham, a hundred years preparing him for a major role in the coming kingdom of God. So you can't flatten out the pyramid and think you're following God. You can't select your own leaders and think you're following God. God does not operate that way. He's choosing and training people. And the appointments are going to be based on character. The character that we build now. Do we trust God? Do we follow his instructions? Do we tremble before his word? Are we able to treat people with love and concern and patience and understanding? Do we focus on serving? Matthew chapter 20. Are we servant-oriented leaders? Or do we want a big position? Do we want to be noticed by other people? Do we want to gather uh, things to ourselves, you know, big cars, big homes, uh, big titles? <clears throat> if that's our focus, we're going to miss out. Uh, that's not what God is looking for. So the structure of God's government is uh, <clears throat> outlined pretty clearly in the Bible. I wanted to mention, too, just some excerpts from a book entitled The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. It's a husband and wife team. They were Catholics writing about government and government history. 
But the, the chapter 10 that deals with government and history, it's interesting what they conclude is the lesson of history about government. <clears throat> he quotes the uh, <clears throat> poet <clears throat> Plato. Plato lived and wrote about 400 years B.C. What Plato noticed at that time was that there appeared to be a sequence of governments, a sequence that governments go through over time. They start out as monarchies where they have a king. And then when the king dies, in some cases, it goes to an aristocracy or an oligarchy where you have a, a rule of the few. And then uh, it transitions sometimes into a democracy where the people rule. They all decide what they want to do. That generally becomes uh, unworkable, usually in a relatively short period of time. And then out of that confusion, a strong man arises. People begin to look for somebody to get them out of this mess that democracy's got them into. And a dictatorship arrives. He says, you see this in the history of Rome. You see it in the history of other governments. And he mentions that democracy is, is an unstable form of government. It's a very difficult form of government to operate. But the Grants, <clears throat> or Durants, make these observations. After the breakdown of Roman democracy in class wars of uh, Caesar and others, Augustus organized under what, <clears throat> in effect, was monarchical rule, the rule of a king, uh, the greatest achievement in the history of statesmanship, the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which maintained peace from approximately 30 B.C. to 180 A.D., almost 200 years throughout an empire ranging from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, from Scotland to the Black Sea. He mentions that after Augustus died, there was a period of unrest where some... <clears throat> Rulers disgraced themselves, but he said after that came Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, the finest succession of good and great sovereigns that the world has ever seen. Uh, if, said Gibbon, this was <clears throat> Gibbon who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, if a man were called upon to fix the period during which con the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would without hesitation name that which eclipsed from the accession of Nerva to the death of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, it was a period of about 200 years. Their united reigns are possibly the only period in the history in, of history in which the happiness of great people was the sole object of the government. In that brilliant age when Rome's subjects complimented themselves on being under her rule, Monarchy was adoptive. The emperor transmitted his authority not to his offspring, but to the ablest man he could find, the most capable man. That's what Moses was talking about in Exodus uh, 18. He adopted this man as his son, trained him in the functions of government, and gradually surrendered to him the reins of power. The system worked well. So what the Durants noticed was the system of government on a monarchical system under kings where they trained very carefully the person that was to succeed them, uh, a person that was chosen on the basis of ability and character. This seems to be the most natural form of government. The Durants say it reflects the government within the family where the father is to lead and to guide and to teach. So this is really the structure of <clears throat> the type of government that we find in the Bible. What is that government going to do in Acts chapter 19? We read that when Christ returns, there's going to be a restoration of all things. The government of God is going to be restored on this earth. What is that government going to do in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4? We read that the law of God is going to go forth on this earth. The law of God is going to go forth from Zion, from Jerusalem. The laws of God, the Ten Commandments, the health laws of God, the principles that we find in the Bible. In Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, we're told that we will see our teachers. People will see their teachers. This is the saints reigning on this earth. 
And those teachers will say, this is the way. Not over here. This is the way. This is the right form of religion. This is the right form of government. These are the policies that we're going to follow. People will see their teachers. They will say, this is the way. Learn to walk in that way. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, Moses told the Israelites that the kings are to make their own copy of the law. In other words, to write out the laws of Moses, so-called. They're the laws of God. And then internalize those things. So that when they're reigning, when they're making decisions, these laws of God's will run through their mind. And they will use those laws to guide their decisions. In Psalm 119, again, we're told in the Bible that David is going to reign over all Israel. He's going to be the king over all Israel, Hosea 3.5. But we read in Psalm 119, I would encourage you, maybe when you go home this evening or in your Bible study tomorrow, sit down with Psalm 119, read through it, Notice David's perspective. Notice his statements. And keep in mind, this is the man who's going to reign over all Israel, the model nation in the coming kingdom of God. This is the man who is a man after God's own heart. You can pick up his attitude towards the law of God in Psalm 119. But drink in these words and ask yourself, do I have this perspective? Because David has this perspective. He's going to reign over all Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. And this is what God is looking for in all of us. David says in verse 1, Psalm 119, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of God. They're going to be blessed. Things are going to go better for them. In uh, verse 12, he said, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Help me learn. Help me grow. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is David's approach to the laws of God. Many people say today that all these Old Testament laws, I don't understand them. They don't apply to us. Uh, But notice what David's attitude was. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Help me understand, God why you've said not to eat certain things. Help me understand some of these other laws and principles. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 97, David says, oh, how I love your law. David wasn't angry with the law of God. He didn't think it was a burden. He says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers because I have your word as a guide. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That was David's attitude towards the laws of God. Many people today think the law is a burden. We have to be... uh, delivered from this burden yet david had a very different understanding in john 14 15 jesus told his disciples if you love me keep my commandments you follow my instructions the apostle john mentions in first john 5 3 he talks about you if you love me there keep my commandments he says that my commandments are not burdensome (laughs) they're not a burden you're the sabbath is a day to rejoice I remember talking with my sons one time about uh, the feast and Christmas. They were little. I was teaching them. I said, uh, let's just for once, let's keep Christmas this year and not keep the feast. And one of my boys said, Dad, you keep Christmas. Christmas is one day. The feast is eight days. You lose, Dad. You lose. You know, who would not want to go to the feast where you take a tenth of your income and you go and you live very nicely? You're able to entertain. You're able to do special things. God wants the feast to picture this exciting future coming kingdom of God, a time of peace, a time of joy. Remember we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that Jesus Christ, uh, as a result of his government, is going to bring peace to this earth. He's called the Prince of Peace. And yet in other places in the 
prophets, Isaiah 59, verse 8, Isaiah says they don't know the way to peace. Human beings don't know the way to peace. And yet if you turn to Psalm 119, verse 165, notice what David had written. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. See, as the laws go forth from Jerusalem, people are going to be taught the way to peace. They're going to be taught the way to peace, that you don't kill, you don't steal, you don't lust, you don't covet. You answer softly instead of coming back harshly. See, it's a way to peace, and it's described in the Scriptures. People are going to be taught how to uh, think and how to make decisions based on the Bible. Education is going to have to be based on the Bible, right education. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point. God created the earth. He created the animals. He designed things. It just didn't evolve out of nothing. See, the Bible gives us a point in the right direction. The Bible talks about if you do your own thing, you're going to get in trouble. If you make up your own values, you're going to get in trouble. But if you follow my laws, as David said, you'll be blessed. Things will go better for you. So right education is going to have to be based on the Scriptures. We're told in Zechariah 14, maybe read the whole chapter, when Christ returns, people are going to be taught to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And the nation that doesn't come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast is not going to get any rain that year. If they don't come up the next year, things are going to get more difficult. God is going to nudge people in the right direction. As they learn about the feast, they're going to be told, this has been the plan of God all along. About a coming kingdom of God, the reign of Christ and the saints on this earth that you can become part of. So this is what is going to happen when Christ returns. Malachi chapter 4, towards the end, it talks about the hearts of the fathers are going to be turned to the children. And the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers. An emphasis on the family. God has designed the family so that we can begin to understand what it's going to be like to be part of the family of God. The feast is a time for families to get together, to fellowship together to focus on the meaning of the feast and the coming kingdom of God and the coming government of God that we can be part of. Brethren, as we continue with the feast here, we're going to be talking about various aspects of this coming kingdom and the coming government of God that you and I can prepare for. And keep in mind, this was the gospel that Jesus Christ brought to the earth almost 2,000 years ago about a coming kingdom of God, a time of peace, a time of joy. You and I have been called out of this world to prepare for this coming kingdom of God. God has opened your eyes to begin to realize Christmas and Easter have nothing to do with the coming kingdom of God, but the holy days do. They picture this plan and purpose that God is working out on this earth that is going to encompass the entire world like this mustard seed that grows and spreads throughout the world that you and I have been called to become kings and priests, to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to bring the government of God to this earth that's going to restore everything. Sounds almost too good to be true, but that is the message of your Bible. That is the message of Jesus Christ. And that is the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Brethren, I hope that you have a very profitable and inspiring feast.